Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to The Catch with John Fisher on Blog Talk Radio, connecting life to faith. To get it together, trying to help their fellow man, hoping we can make it better. Do you really think we can? All right, hey, thank you so much for joining Blog Talk Radio with John Fisher. And ladies and gentlemen, this is Gunner, and it's a privilege and an honor to introduce to you on this President's Day, John. <laughs> hey, Gunner, how are you? Doing well. Good. All right, all right. Well, we got a nice week. Uh, a week ahead of. I, you know, my kids have this week off. Oh, really? No. Uh, yeah, it's called Ski Week. Oh. Uh, I don't. I don't know where. Yeah, I don't know where else they do that. But yeah. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Oh, I know, I know, but uh, you know, I'm I'm just trying to keep my my son and all his friends quiet, so we can carry <laughs> this on, carry carry out our show here. Um, so how how are things up in Portland? Things are well. It's a little, uh, it's a bit of a windy day here. It's a beautiful day. I think it would surprise a lot of people that uh, it's it's a sunny day in Portland, Oregon. And uh, coming off of the big weekend of, you know, uh, Valentine's Day, and and uh, I've got a big week myself next week, John. I've got uh, my yeah. my mom, my mom and my wife have a birthday on the same day, and then the next day my daughter has a birthday. And I've always said that with Valentine's Day and all their birthdays in February, if I get February wow. wrong, I'm in trouble. <laughs> I mean, I'm just in trouble if I get February. Not, not that that would happen. Yeah. <laughs> wow, you just got to, you just got to make it through this month. <laughs> oh, it's a, it's a lot of fun. We've got a lot of fun things planned and and special. Uh, my mom's actually got a little party going on tomorrow. It's the uh, Fat Tuesday Mardi Gras thing, and so they're getting together with a bunch of ladies. So, anyhow, that's uh that's life in uh, Portland, Oregon. And uh, John, this is exciting. We've got a fun show tonight. It's going to be a, a good, yeah. uh, exciting guest. We do, we do, and uh, I'm very excited to have our guest with us um, tonight. And he is an, an author, uh, a producer, a commentator, and those are the only three I could think of because there's a lot more that this guy does. Um, Actually, I would say he's one of the few people I know who are at the cutting edge of Christians in the entertainment world, Gunnar. Wow, that's great. He's really got a handle on, on this kind of thing. He's involved in, in the movies. He understands this whole I, this whole shift to Christian movies that we had, sure. you know, when the Passion of Christ came, and now suddenly everybody has to make a Christian movie, and yeah. uh, there's a lot of money for it, and a lot of people vying for that. Uh, he has uh, a number of books out on, he's followed the whole music world, and we're going to talk about both that. We're going to talk a little bit about music, a little bit about movies, um, and uh, a little bit about Japan. Now, oh, wow. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's where it this all will started. Be fun. So would you uh, uh, please, I'd love to welcome Mark Joseph on to our show today. Mark, how are you? 
Hey, great to talk to you guys. Uh, John, it's always a pleasure. Uh, thanks for having me on. Thank you. Thank you. Now, as far as I know, Mark, this whole thing began in Japan. Is that right? Am I right about that? Uh, well, it, it was in Japan where I first started reading a column by a guy named John Fisher. <laughs> that's what you're referring to. But yes, yeah, I did grow up. Yeah. I did grow up in uh, Tokyo, Japan, where my parents had lived for many years, and so I spent most of the first 18 years of my life there. Now, were they missionaries, or you just were they just in business there? Yeah, they were missionaries. If you notice a slight accent, that's a Tokyo accent in my English. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll I'll work on that. I'll I'll try and find that, Mark. <laughs> oh dear. Um, now, you had the most interesting uh, beginning to your entertainment experience as a commentator on Japanese television. Now, tell us about that. Well, I did speak, uh, because I was bilingual when I first got out of uh, college, uh, my first jobs were uh, a production coordinator uh, on uh, documentaries. did a lot of those okay. for Jap- Japanese television, then I moved to anchoring. And uh, so I spent the first uh, you know 10 years or so out of college uh, producing, anchoring, and hosting uh, talk shows on Japanese TV that were many of them were exploring sort of uh, America and American life and so forth. And now, so that was a, an incredible experience. I, you know, I had to obviously learn to speak. I mean, I, I knew Japanese, but I had to learn to uh, do it. Uh, I got to tell you, of all the difficult things I've had to do in my life, nothing I don't think was any more difficult than learning to read Japanese on a teleprompter for my TV show. Uh, wow. That was uh, that was tough. It took me. Uh, I had a lot of preparation. I had a tutor who would help me. Uh, so uh, after that, I can pretty much do anything. My goodness! So you were doing the whole show in Japanese, right? Right. I had a co-anchor, and so we did the show from from Hollywood, and uh, we would bring you know the latest Hollywood news to the viewers in Japan. It was a CNN-based production, and. That's kind of where I cut my teeth uh, in terms of television work early after college. Yeah. Now, you told me earlier that, that you were also, there's another interesting twist to it. You were, you were also helping to teach English to, in, a, in a kind of backdoor way to, to people there. How, how did that work? Right, boy, you're going way back here in my my work life. But I know. yeah, I, after, after work, after doing the uh, the TV show for, uh, for CNN for a couple of years, it was called the Entertainment Report. I uh, I was given an offer to host my own show on NHK, which is Japan's sort of BBC. It's the state-run TV network that has the largest viewership. And the instructions were pretty simple. Just uh, We just want you to interview sort of well-known Americans. And so I had a, a great time traveling around the States. And uh, I think we did close to, uh, well, I'm forgetting, maybe 100 episodes or so. And I had everybody from Charlton Heston to Jay Leno to Larry King. I traveled to Hawaii and interviewed Don Ho. And basically the Japanese would use the show uh, to learn English. And so my... Uh, 20-minute episode on Japanese TV. They would uh, publish a textbook along with it and every month. Huh. And so the fans of the show would read along with the textbook, the, the text of the interviews. And uh, I just had a great time, uh, you know, getting the wisdom of 
really collecting the wisdom from so many American cultural figures like those and, and many others. Uh, Charles Schultz, who was the Snoopy creator, yeah, you know his uh, incredible story. He really didn't do many interviews. He was a very uh, phobic type personality. Didn't travel. I think he had agoraphobia or something. And and for some reason, not only to God and him, he asked me to come up, and I did a uh, a whole show with him. So um, I had some incredible experiences along the way. Anyone else? Uh, who else sticks out in your memory from those those experiences of interviewing? <laughs> well, famous famous you learn, American. You, yeah, you you learn what people are really like. Uh, I have to be careful what I say here, but I had a less than stellar experience with Tommy Lasorda of the Dodgers, uh, <laughs> and I had a wonderful experience with Charlton Heston, who uh, we, we were at his house on his uh, on his patio, chit chatting, and planes were buzzing overhead, and and I had Charlton Heston apologizing to me for the plane traffic overhead. And I, I had to say, you know, Mr. Heston, that's not your fault that planes are buzzing your house. You know, it's nothing that you did. And uh, But just uh, incredibly gracious moments like that. Larry King uh, had me up on his set, uh, which, you know, talk shows never let you interview them on their set. Um, so just uh, I was struck by wow. Jay Leno, that, he, that Jay Leno was a very serious person when you talked to him. And then it really occurred to me that, you know, his day job is being funny. So in... Uh, I mean, his job is being funny, so when he's in his off hours, I guess he's not funny, you know. Uh, sort of those kinds of things that I learned up close uh, talking to interesting people. That's very cool. Now, just one more question about this whole experience. How on earth did you get started uh, on something like this, uh, especially in Japan? You know, when I'm whenever I speak to students, I, I always talk about this part of it, and that is that, I am not the smartest or brightest or fastest or swiftest uh, of anything. Um, but I, I'm blessed with, obviously, I've, you know, I've had a vision for what I wanted to do. I'm blessed with good friends and good friends who know what I wanted to do. And I would really counsel anybody who's a young person that, you know, share your dreams with people. And then when they have opportunities to propel you, they will if, if you're also helping them. And I can think oh, of the maybe six or seven or eight, uh, important moments uh, in my life, and almost I, I think every one of them uh, was through a friend. Um, mm. My job, my job anchoring at CNN was through a friend of mine who knew that I wanted to do a TV show. My writing for USA Today, for the Huffington Post, for Fox News, my work for Walden, um, all the big, kind of big transitional moments in my life. Literally, each one came from a friend who said, "Hey, you need to talk to so to so and so," or a friend who knew that outlet or that publication and said, you need to have Mark Joseph writing for you. So uh, while I wish I could uh, attribute it all to my brilliance, it really was um, friendships. And, and, of course, I try to return the favor as often as I can. Uh, but we, we, if we're all helping each other in those ways, we really can you know, accomplish interesting things. Well, that's great. And that's, uh, that, that's something to note right right there off the bat. I mean, we can all learn from uh I can sure learn a lot about that. I, I, the writer in me tends to be the uh, recluse, you know, the, 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 the melancholy, uh, stay, stay at home and live with my thoughts guy. I bet, I bet you have some of that because you are a writer. I bet you have a little bit of that, don't you, Mark? I do, I do. I, I'm uh, uh, writing is um, 
Uh, writing is sort of like giving birth to me. It's not necessarily a pleasurable process, but once the baby's born, you know, I'm sure my, my wife is thrilled after the baby's born, but <laughs> leading up to it, it's a little like giving birth. And um, for me, I have the luxury of sort of writing whenever something annoys me enough or I'm inspired enough to write something. And so it's yeah. not a part of my daily routine, but uh, oftentimes a, a column will formulate in my head um, I feel like when I have five or six ideas about the same thing, then I have enough for a column, and then I'll kind of write it. But, yeah, writing books is hard for me. It's it's not a ton of fun, but, of course, I love it, you know, once they're out, and then I can talk about them. Uh, yeah. But that's uh, – you're maybe a little – I think you're probably a little bit more of an enjoy writing for enjoyment person than I am. I'm a little bit more writing because I need to kind of a person. I see. Well, then there must have been a number of things that annoyed you about Christian music <laughs> because you have written a number of books. I know at least of of two, and I think I I think you've got a third one coming out now. Is uh, I have 1999 Rock and Roll Rebellion. Was that your first? Or was there? Am I correct? Is there one before that? No, you're right. That's the first book. It's, that's the uh, first one. Yeah. You're, you're right. I, I hate to be known of as the person who writes when he's annoyed, but I guess I just gave myself a place today. Um, well, rock and, rock and Roll, let me see. For our listeners, I want to give them the whole title here. Rock and Roll Rebellion, Why People of Faith Abandon Rock Music and Why They're Coming Back. Tell us why you wrote that one. Sure. Uh, you know, I think you might have contributed to that one with your writings in the 80s, but I definitely grew up in an era when... Uh, uh, because of writers like you and others, I just sort of began to look askance at the uh, the faith pop culture that I had been handed, which consisted of feeling like Christians were to be second-class citizens uh, with their own, you know, corners of the bookstore and uh, their own radio stations and all that. And I just didn't want to live in that world. Um, I wanted to live in a world where the ideas that I grew up with that I was proud of, most of them, uh, were integrated into the fabric of pop culture. I, I hated the fact that when you thought of the 70s, when a, when a normal American thought of the 70s, um, you know, uh, they, they were not thinking about John Fisher or Phil Keggy. They were thinking about Carly Simon or, you know, whomever. And I, mm-hmm. I, wanted, to, I wanted to be a part of creating a world in which um, the people that I admired uh, were integrated into it. And so to get there, um, I had to stop believing the woe is me persecution stories that I heard too often um, from mm-hmm. some some Christians in the culture. Um, the sort of, you know, we've peeked into the into the land and there are giants there and we can't go there. Uh, and, and, and to some extent, that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy after a while. And so... Um, so I wanted to see if we couldn't do a better job of integrating and you know, the, the, America is a beautiful place because every different ethnic and religious and cultural group and even sexual orientation group, I guess you'd say today, uh, comes to the mainstream and makes their case for why they should be heard. And so I, I just never thought it makes it made sense for, for Christians and, and other peoples of faith to say, well, well, that's okay, we don't need to be here, we'll go off in our corner and talk to each other and sing for each other. So, so I would say that was the big issue that drove me to write these books, um, Started in the mid-90s, I wrote an article for a Billboard magazine um, call it comparing uh, Christian music to the Negro Baseball Leagues. And oh, yeah, I remember you, that. 
obviously using the terminology of that era. We don't use that term anymore. But um, uh, what I was trying to understand with with that baseball league was that you know it wasn't just uh, racists that kept black players out of baseball. It was actually um, the the owners themselves, the Negro Baseball League, because they had uh, they had kind of a gig going, and the last thing they wanted. Uh, was to have these artists, I mean, these these players, uh, cross over into the mainstream because then the league would go away, as it did. And so I, I just realized there was kind of a collusion um, between those who had a vested interest in it staying the same as well as those who just don't like religious people, period. And that that collusion was resulting in artists that I really liked. You know, I, I had worked with bands like Sixpence, None the Richer, and, and so many other bands in the early 90s, and they felt trapped. Uh, in Christian music, and so um, so that article with Billboard uh, became an article for World and for CCM, and God bless John Still for printing that article, um, uh, which was called "Should CCM Exist?" and uh, and I laid out a vision with two f- friends, uh, Patrick Cavanaugh, the classical music scholar, and Carrie Livgren of the band Kansas, and we really just called for a, kind of a reformation, and and that became uh, the Rock and Roll Rebellion. And uh, we were just, you know, I, I think it's a fairly simple idea. Time, I guess, there was a little bit of controversy with it. Um, mm-hmm. And then three years, three years later, I did a book called Faith, uh, of God, and Rock and Roll, which was kind of part two uh, of that series and more documenting what I was seeing, which was more and more artists uh, of faith coming into the mainstream. Okay. And that was, that was what you wanted to see happen, right? I think so. Yeah, I, I think we're a much healthier culture. And um, the next book that you talked about uh, comes out in 2016, and this is the last. I think I'm done writing about music, but uh, this one is called uh, "Rock Gets Religion," and the subtitle is "The Battle for the Soul of the Devil's Music." And it's a little bit tongue in cheek, but um, yeah, this is kind of the the world that I think many of us were hoping to have. It's not perfect, but um, I, I just I do take heart by the fact that young artists who have faith in God don't feel compelled to travel to Nashville and sign to Christian labels exclusively. And many of them are signing directly to mainstream labels. Um, it's happening mm-hmm. so much, John, that I think people are not even keeping up with the pace of the ch- of change. And I don't even, I think very, very secular people aren't even aware that so many artists from the fray to Mumford and Sons to mm-hmm. uh, so many others to Justin Bieber, Katy Perry. I mean, these are all, either artists who came from CCM or just who avoided it altogether. And mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it's truly happened, and it's a bit of a mixed bag, but, but it has happened. Yeah, yeah. Who who are, if you remember, who are the key people to start it? Who are the, some of the first ones to break break across? In, in, and you could, you could say, when you, when you saw that happening, now that's what I was hoping was going to happen. Yeah, you know, I, I, it's, it's funny. Everybody has their attempt at it, and some are very clumsy at it, and some are very good at it. Um, I worked with a band called um, Chevelle uh, that was pretty good about uh, this in, tra- in in making themselves available to the mainstream, and also Switchfoot has done a very good job. I recall yeah. Chevelle, Chevelle did an interview early on <clears throat> where they were asked by a rock reporter, you know, did you realize that your albums are in Christian stores? And Chevelle just said, oh, oh, we're honored by that. Wow. The fact that they would like our CDs enough to stock them, uh, we feel honored. Um, as hmm. opposed to, uh, there was a band called Evanescence, and same thing happened to them. 
uh, Chris Wilman of Entertainment Weekly asked them mm-hmm. if they were in Christian stores, and they, you know, cursed God and said, oh, I don't know why we're there, and please pull us from Christian retail. And, and you know, these are two kids who met at a youth camp, so they're not fooling anybody. Um, but just uh, just that different attitude. I've always encouraged bands, uh, you know, if look at Christian retail as another outlet for your music. Uh, it doesn't mm-hmm. make you a Christian rock band. But if Christians are your fans, uh, why would you object to that? And uh, so I thought also uh, Switchfoot has handled it very, very well. I love the comment they gave where they said we're Christian by faith, not by genre. I think that kind of captured uh, the ethos in uh, you know in one sentence. Christian by, what was the first thing? Christian by? Christian by faith, not by genre. By faith. Okay, I didn't quite catch that. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Uh, what What do you... I'm sure you get. I ah well, maybe this is an old question. I don't know that you still get this, but what what about the people that say, well, if you're a Christian and you're going to be popular in the world, you're going to have to compromise the gospel or water down your faith and things like that. Do you get that? Still get that question a lot, Mark? Um, I I do, and uh, you know, look, there's a grain of truth there. Um, but I don't think that's the you know that has to be the ruling uh, organizing principle of your life. Of, of course, um, you have to figure out where your points of compromise are, and they're not. And I also would make a distinction, John, between a strategic compromise and a moral compromise. You know, if you're in a battle, let's say you're on the battlefield, and I've never been in the in the Marines or in the military, but uh, battlefield life, as I understand it, is full of strategic compromises and strategic withdrawals. You're you're in your quest to you know, move forward on the battlefield, you might drop back uh, a mile, you might move forward. It's just part of the the, the battle, the struggle mm. you're in. So it, it doesn't mean that you're not a proud, uh, uh, you know, a proud uh, Marine if you happen to move back a few paces to accomplish your goal. Now, a, a moral compromise is if you, you know, switch sides and join the other side. I mean, then you've got a serious problem and you'll be court-martialed. I think there's something mm-hmm. similar there here, too. I, I remember that... Um, and again, I've been the benefit of wisdom from so many people above my pay grade, but I was once producing a song with Andre Crouch, and um, I'd been contacted by, uh, by uh, you know, a music company that wanted us to, wanted me to produce a song uh, for a commercial, and it was, uh, they wanted us to do Oh Happy Day, the old uh, gospel standard. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, what a great chance. I've always wanted to work, work with Andre. So I called up Andre, and I said, look, let's, you want to do the song? He said, great, we're going to do it. And then the Japanese client came back and said, well, there's just one little rub. We don't want you guys to use the word Jesus in the song. And I thought to myself, well, that's an odd request. How do I do Oh Happy Day without using the word Jesus? You know, because it's kind of part of the line, Oh Happy Day when Jesus took my Jesus sins away. Jesus washed my sins away. When Jesus washed my sins away, right. Yeah. So I was kind of baffled by this one. And I, I remember going to Andre and I said, you know, what do you think we should do here? And he thought about it for a second, and he said, tell him we'll say it, the word Jesus only four times. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I thought to him, I said, okay, well, let's try that. And so I don't know what it would normally be, 10 or 20 or whatever. And so I went back to the client, and I said, listen, I, you're talking about one of the greatest gospel singers in history, and it's pretty hard to ask him not to use the name of that guy that he really admires. Uh, he said, he'll do it if you'll let him just say it four times. And so they came back and said, fine, four times is good. Well, we cheated and did it five times. But the <laughs> point is that, yeah, the point is that, like, that was a great place where, you know, we could have been uh, obstinate and said, you know, uh, 
if we can't say it 26 times, you know, then, you know, go away. Yeah. Um, but it was a very smart, and that's the kind of thing that I learned from Andre, to be very smart, very strategic, but still, uh, you know, not give up a ghost and not give up what you believe or, or walk away from what you believe. Wow. Wow. Well, now uh, you've got one more you mentioned coming out next year, I guess, Rock Rock Gets Religion. Um, how does that – just give us one more idea, and then we're going to be on to some other topics here. But I just want to know how that book is going to differ from the first two. Is this, this is going to be more showing – is this going to be more showing people who are doing a good job of this in a way? Is that what we're going to expect there? Yeah, I would say so. And I think I spoke to you for this book as well. I wanted to get the perspective of you as one of the early, Mm -hmm. you know, guys who was in this early on and how you see things as well. But yeah, we laid out, I lay out in the book uh, what's happened in the year since the last one and, and look, there have been some good examples of artists doing this well and maybe some not-so-great examples. Uh, but I think of uh, Lecrae, who I have a chapter on Lecrae in the book. And uh, the way he's accomplished things, he's got the number one, he had the number one record in the country when his record came out. He did it in an independent way, apart from major labels. Um, he's really strives, uh, he strives to uh, be considered a mainstream artist. And, you know, I think our culture is better off for having a guy like Lecrae uh, doing what he's doing. Now, there are others. Um, I think Justin Bieber is an example of the kind of artist who in the past would have uh, been pointed to Nashville, signed to a Christian label, and might have been a a different, and wouldn't have impacted. And I know some of your listeners will say, well, has the impact of the culture for good? And, you know, that's a, that has, uh, the final chapter in that book has not been written yet. But Mm -hmm. I think all things, all things being equal, I'm much more uh, thrilled to have somebody like Justin Bieber with all of his flaws at the center of our pop culture rather than some of the pop icons we've had in the past over the last 50 years who have, um, who have been much more of a negative influence on, uh, on the culture. Great. Great. Well, okay. So you've, you've, you've worked with TV, you've, you've been a commentator and, and, and now we just found out that it's a, you're a producer and you produce music. Um, and uh, now let's. T- I, I want to get into the movies because I, I think I know you also have uh, gotten into movies as a movie producer as well. How did that transition happen? What were some of your first experiences in 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 the movie world? Sure. You know, I hate to sound like Forrest Gump, but once again, I I really did. Uh, this is not my plan to produce movies. I had no inkling. I I sort of got pushed into it about 15 years ago when I was at Walden. Uh, Walden had a record label called W Recordings, and I was working there, and, you know, working with artists. And um, and they shut that down and said, there's a film division, and so we want you to go to the film division. That's literally, you know, my grand ambition to be a film producer was being shoved shoved into it uh, in that way. But um, one of the first films I got to work on was The Chronicles of Narnia, as well as the Ray Charles movie and about a dozen other Walden films. So I worked in the areas of developing, marketing, um, I have a chance to read the scripts early on, give notes, kind of give some uh, suggestions as to what actors we should use and things like that. And uh, that developed into also marketing. And so I've I've sort of worn uh, more of those two hats of development and marketing for about 10 years before I forwarded into producing and uh, produced my first short film in, in 04. And then my first feature-length film was uh, called Doonby, uh, a film starring John Schneider. And um, I've got a 
a few coming out in the next few years. Uh, Max Rose, which stars Jerry Lewis, um, producing a Reagan biopic, also a film on Tolkien and Lewis, and uh, a documentary called Silence Patton. So uh, primarily in narratives, but occasionally we'll work on a, a documentary. And, and uh, um, you know, music, as you know, as you well know, uh, being a great artist as you are, it's a very, very tough time right now. And mm-hmm. so unfortunately, the only music I get to produce these days is if I get to produce a, a song for a movie I'm working on. Uh, last year, I had a chance to produce uh, Dave Mustaine of Megadeth doing the Star Spangled Banner for the film America, which was a lot of fun. Um, great. But, uh, but the state of music is in a very tough place right now. I don't know how people make a living at it right now, to be honest with you. It sounds like you you enjoy music producing uh, the most. Of course, how can you do that? How can you say, you know, one thing over another, but it sounds like that has a special place for you. Yeah, you know, both have become a lot of fun. Uh, Producing a film, you know, really takes about 10 different hats. There's the the financing element and the creative elements and the script development, and it it is, it's it's much more work. Uh, whereas music is fairly straightforward, but film is a, is really an all-encompassing thing, and you really have to juggle. It reminds me of the Amy Grant song, Hat, that she had back then, that you have to wear multiple hats. And um, and then mm-hmm. also find, finding good people. Uh, people ask me, what is you know, what is producing a movie like? And I say, it's sort of like a general contractor or the person who designs a building, and then you know you don't actually have the ability to lay tile yourself but you know a, a good guy who lays tie-on has done a great job, and same thing for other jobs. And so it's really about having a vision for a film and then assembling the people and working closely with them and really drawing the best out of each of them and the things they're good at. Okay, so um, we had Mel Gibson come along with The Passion of, of Christ. We, we're trying to think, uh, was Narnia before or after that? Yeah, The Passion of the Christ was uh, February of '04, and Narnia was uh, the fall of '05, Christmas '05, I believe. Right. So the Narnia okay. Passion came first. So the Passion came first, and obviously, you know, this whole new Hollywood is waking up to the fact that there's this there's this whole new market of Christians that they have completely overlooked, and. Mr. Gibson is making millions off of that market. And so, uh, obviously, duh, you know, the rest of Hollywood is going to want to get in on this in some form. So now we have a whole deal. We've, we've got we've got people who actually, uh, you know, uh, secular movie film companies, I, I guess, who who want to make Christian films and they don't know how to make them or how to market them, but they know someone else does. And, uh, and so they want to get into this and it's opened up a, a, a whole new market. And I, I would imagine a bag of worms as well. How do you, how do you sort through, <laughs> how do you sort through where we are now? And, and uh, I don't even know the question I'm asking, but I, <laughs> sure. you know, sure. what is, yeah, where are we at with Christian, with this whole deal of Christian movies? Yeah, uh, again, I, I had the chance at that same time to be working on both those incredible projects. And so my, my work on The Passion was officially to produce the Inspired by soundtrack 
And then uh, also I worked on marketing for the passion. And then for Narnia, again, I worked on the development and the marketing of it. Um, I would just say that those were, you know, we really strove to try to make those, those were mainstream films, believe it or not. I mean, ironically, Mm -hmm. that film about Jesus Christ's death and resurrection is a mainstream film. But I think that everything about those uh, was geared for both, uh, you know, devout Christians and non-religious people to enjoy or other faiths to enjoy. And Mm -hmm. so I think uh, I was certainly consciously trying to avoid the mistakes that I think that the Christian music paradigm gave us. And that is, uh, to me, that's the false notion that we think that any time I have a religious thought or story I want to tell, I have to tell it in such an obnoxiously religious way that non-religious people will not be interested in it. And that if I can't tell it in that obnoxious, and I'm, I'm being facetious, but if I can't tell it in that obnoxious way, then fine, I'm going to go away and make it over here for equally obnoxious religious people. And I, I, I just, I don't buy into that paradigm at all. I think as a, as a courtesy to your listener or viewer, you want to try to tell your story in a way that that person can understand it. And uh, that may mean making some modifications. Um, you know, I know people who uh, who hear the voice of God, and they try very hard not to say, God told me, because that would sound like a crazy person in our culture. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. they, find a different, they find a different language to use that reflects the fact that they think they're hearing from God. And that's just a courtesy to your more secular friend, that you don't talk like that, because you want to be understood. And I think in the same way, uh, when you're making films or records, you want to try that there is a way I believe, and I think Narnia and the Passion are excellent examples that you can make strong statements of your faith in a way that doesn't lose um your more secular film goer or listener and mm-hmm. I can't think of a better example I can't think of a better example John than c s Lewis, who somehow managed to give the mere Christianity talks on the b b c right right well. It doesn't hurt that he was brilliant, <laughs> and that and that and that he could he could uh, make it reasonable and make it make sense to uh, to ordinary people. That's so true. Uh, yeah, I, I believe that there was actually a, there was actually a barn a poll. I don't have the numbers with me, but surprisingly, the Passion of the Christ audience was fairly evenly split between sort of devout, uh, born-again or Catholic Christians and more, less church-going people. I believe it was uh-huh. 52, 48 or something. And so, I mean, that's, that's to me a sign of success. And also with Narnia, you know, I always think of Narnia as the film that there were two groups of people, those that uh, thought that Aslan was Jesus Christ and those that thought Aslan was a cute lion, and they all came and enjoyed the film. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I truly think that's you know that's what we should be striving for um, in the in the kind of work we create uh, and and the, because that's you know that's after all we're, what we're on the planet for. And so I would just encourage those who you know listen to your podcast uh, not to give in to the kind of cheap marketing uh, idea that if you have a, a, a religious idea in your head, it's only good for other religious people. Anybody can do that, frankly. You know, it mm-hmm. doesn't take a lot of effort. But it does take a lot of effort to say, okay, I have this idea about God that I want to tell the world. How do I tell it in a way uh, that, that, that can, it can be understood by people that don't even know him or maybe even care about him? Can you, can you name maybe a movie or two in your 
estimation that that does this well, that maybe has a Christian, uh, you know, influence or worldview or or something that that or a thoughtfulness that would would make one turn their thoughts towards towards uh, truth, um, but isn't necessarily screaming out that this is a Christian movie for Christians. Well, uh, I hate to be old school, but to me, it's really hard to top Chariots of Fire in its deafness, mm. in its light touch, and yet making a profound, profound truth. There really was very little in the film that was kind of overt, in-your-face proselytizing, but there were occasional moments of power in the whole arc of the story. The fact mm. that somebody would be willing to give up their dream because of their belief, uh, their love for God. I mean, that's a powerful idea but again it was just handled so deftly and there was just uh i think it's a beautiful piece of art it won an academy award obviously so the world recognized it um the costuming was excellent all the technical details were there and Mm -hmm. uh i I think that's uh that's a role model uh i think nobody on the planet would say that film you know compromised or didn't have a message or something and yet it was so good that the world recognized it for its artistry and craft, and I think that's what the goal should be. Yeah. Has this has this open door uh, to Christians in Hollywood uh, ended up in some really bad faith based movies? I don't. I'm not suggesting you tell us what they are, but I mean, is that happening too? Though, and and what can we do about that? Just kind of ignore them, or what? Uh, well, you know, one of the, uh, the difficult things about Hollywood is that, and this maybe is just in life, is people learn the wrong lessons from things that happen. And so the Passion of the Christ happens, and this is a, a monumental moment in Hollywood history. I think this is probably one of the five top most important moments because when those numbers come in on Monday morning, the, the Passion made $125 million over its opening week uh, from Wednesday through Sunday. And I don't know if you follow baseball, but that's the Hollywood equivalent, the you know the baseball equivalent of uh, a, a young boy coming up, you know, riding the train up from Honduras with a stick in his hand, uh, coming to putting on a Yankees uniform and hitting 400 home runs in a season. That's the equivalent of of what happened there that day. And hmm. so the, the moment those numbers come in, I mean, I know how executives in Hollywood that I know reacted, and it was like, what in the world just happened? We don't even know what this is or who these people are. Hmm. And, um, you know, I wrote a piece before The Passion came out with my friend Ralph Winter just saying we saw a tsunami coming. And it was really because I'd called around the country to friends and relatives before The Passion came out, and they had their tickets for opening day. Hmm. And... uh I remember talking to people like I talked to a, a relative in the Midwest and she had never been to a movie in her entire life, John. Like she had not gone to Bambi or the sound of music or anything. And she had her tickets for opening day of the passion of the Christ. Another relative in Dallas who I think hadn't been to the movie since ET and she had her tickets and ready to go. So there were literally about, I count like 9 million people that opening week who Hollywood does not know who they are. <laughs> mm. They are unide- unidentified film goers because mm. they had never been before. And so what the passion really did was open up for the first time this potential audience. And now for the next 10 years have been spent trying to figure out who they are and how do we reach them. 
And it's been very clumsy. It's like watching that awkward 13-year-old boy on his first date uh, with his his girlfriend, and he's trying to decide whether he should hold her hand or not, and he does everything wrong. And Hollywood has done a ton of things wrong over these last 10 years. You know, uh, making a movie about um, Noah and making Noah, Noah into a crazy, maniacal man who wants to kill his granddaughters now, that's the equivalent of the 13-year-old boy, you know, really screwing mm-hmm. up on his date with that girl. Or trying to make Moses and entrusting it to a guy who doesn't believe in God to begin with and asking him to make a story about God dealing with humans and the story of Moses. I mean, that's a, that's a tall mm-hmm. order. So there have been just so many horribly clumsy attempts uh, to do this. And it comes from learning the wrong lessons, getting a lot of bad advice from well-meaning people. Um, but as I often, you know, people will say, well, the passion of the Christ was a fluke. Well, and I'll often answer, John, it would only be a fluke if those people are all dead. But if those people are all alive, which they are in my case, the people that I know who came out for the passion, then they're still there. They're just waiting for a good enough reason to go to the theater. And Mm. so it's not a fluke, but you have to craft things in the way that they want to see them. And uh, you know, I, I, it's, it's like a souffle. If you get one ingredient wrong in your movie or your souffle, I'm told the whole thing collapses in soufflés. Um, and so you can make the most incredible movie, but you get one thing wrong. For instance, you make a bad casting decision, and your movie is not going to work. Um, you have uh, certain words that this audience doesn't want to hear. Uh, it's not going to work. Um, mm-hmm. as, as I said about Noah, you turn a, you know, a, 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 a prophet that three rec- religions recognize as a hero and you make him into a crazy guy, it's not going to work. Um, so can be done, but it has to be done very carefully. Yeah. What would you like to see? What would you like to see happen? What, what do you think is the next, the next thing that needs to to happen to uh, for a, a really creative, maybe Christian in in the movie industry who who wants to to do something new and arresting and um, what what would you what would you like to see if you could have anything you know come true? Well, you know, I I grew up in the post-civil rights era and uh, dealing with things like affirmative action. And I remember that the rallying cry was always, we need a, and also country that reflects, you know, a, a diversity that reflects the country. And, and I think that hmm. same uh, approach applies to people of faith. You know, we, we need a country that reflects the people who live in it, all levels of government. Um, and uh, so, yes, I don't buy into the language of, I often hear, uh, my friends on the Christian right say we have to take back Hollywood or take over Hollywood. And I, I just don't buy into that. But I, I think that Hollywood should reflect the diversity of this country. And so, yes, that, mean, that means we need more African-Americans in roles and directors because they're 12% of the population. We need more Hispanics. We need more women. Women are 50% of the population. We need that diversity. But by the same token, we need more people, more church-going uh, people of faith who uh, should be there in the proportion that they're in the culture, and right now they're not. So I, I would like to see a, a world in which um, uh, people of faith are in film and music and Hollywood just as they are in proportion to the culture, but then mm-hmm. also that they're not, a, they're not, but also that they're not afraid uh, to speak their mind and 
although I'm thrilled with all the artists who are artists of faith in the culture, I still feel like they're holding back and they're afraid to say certain words. And I think they should all take their cue from Johnny Cash, who uh, huh. was not afraid was not afraid to uh, use the word Jesus, uh, but he was also very down to earth and he sang about mm-hmm. life. And um, I would encourage uh, you know your listeners to pick up those lost those last three Cash albums that Rick Rubin did with him. Mm. Yeah, and Rick Rubin. Rick Rubin is a great producer, but he never would have thought once to censor uh, Johnny's faith or his religion, and so he let Johnny's faith come out naturally in those songs. And so you've got, you know, songs like "Kneeling Drunkards Plea" and and other songs, and then you've got a song like "Meet Me in Heaven." And he was allowed to be a full breathing human with all the fears and doubts and hopes and the faith. And so, uh, uh, you know, people like you, John, didn't fight hard for these artists to have a platform for them to say nothing. And so yeah. I, I hope that we'll remember to say something when the platform is attained. Wow. That's wonderful, Mark. I hope, uh, I hope that can happen, and, uh, and I hope we see it happen. Uh, I just, I think, you know, I just hear you saying reality. Let's just, let's just be real. You know, if we're going to put Christians on the screen, then let's just make them real people. Let's not make them what we all think a Christian is supposed to talk like or look like. You know? Right. Wow. Yeah. But, or, you know, or the other extreme is let's not, let's not create narratives that are made up that are just see that, that, that feel to the person of faith like they're intended to, to, to besmirch that character. You know, we know, for instance, we know that Noah was not a perfect man, and you know he got drunk and whatever. And so there, there's plenty to work with without making it up. Sure, you can, you can have that scene, <laughs> yeah. right? Uh, you can have Noah be drunk without him wanting to kill his granddaughters. And so it, it really comes back to the nature of the of the creator of the work. And you know, one one thing, John, I wanted to mention, I forgot to mention. I often hear, uh, you know, the nice Christians living in, in in the Midwest accused of being, oh, they're so narrow-minded and they don't want anybody to take liberties with stories. I don't think that's true at all. I watched Mel Gibson take incredible liberties with the Passion of the Christ. He just made up stuff left and right. Uh, mm-hmm. What comes to mind is, you know, one time uh, I recall we were in a screening and, and you know, Mel had the scene in the Passion where Satan had a baby crawling all over him. Mm-hmm. And I recall, I recall one of the pastors asked Mel, Mr. Gibson, why do you have uh, uh, Satan have a baby in your movie? And, and Mel was, you know, Mel is human above more than above everything else. And he said, well, I always thought that Satan is jealous of God, and he likes to copy God. And so God has Jesus, so I wanted to give Satan a baby. And, you know, we all, we all thought that was brilliant. Well, this pastor said, well, what verse of what chapter of what book of the Bible does it say that? <laughs> and Mel, Mel said, I pulled out of my, and then he uttered a word for rear end uh, to finish that one. <laughs> but, but the point is that Mel Gibson's humanity, another scene when he splashed, when Jesus splashes water, first of all, Mary asks Jesus to set the table. And then Jesus playfully splashes water on his mother. And I thought to myself, I mean, that is, I forgot that Jesus was human. I forgot mm-hmm. that he would be asked to set the table by his mom and then splash mm-hmm. water on his mother. <laughs> And so yeah. Mel was making stuff up left and right, but the, the audience trusted him. And so they were willing to go along with his, uh, you know, additions to the story. And so when, when it comes to Ridley Scott or Darren Aronofsky on those movies, it's not that the audience doesn't let you do that. If they trust you, they will. 
But when they don't mm-hmm. trust you or they don't trust your motives and they think you're up to something funny, then they, they won't let you do anything and they will, you know, they'll fight you on it. Well, gosh, this has been, uh, this has been very enlightening. Um, I, I just have one more question for you, Mark. Um, in the beginning, you were talking about the people who helped you uh, get to do what you really wanted to do. Um, you know, what, what helped your, your own personal dreams come true. Uh, so, obviously, the last question for you, Mark, is uh, are you doing what you set out to do? Um, you know, John, I, I wanted to be a professional baseball player. So this is all plan B for my life. Uh, are you serious? Plan A. You just my leg. Are you serious? No, no, no. That, that, that was my grand plan. So I've learned in life to roll with it. I know that, you know, God is guiding my life. And so, uh, honest to God, uh, I, I wanted to be a baseball player for a Japanese baseball team. And, uh, this is plan B. Plan B has been pretty good. Point is, uh, you know, we're supposed to set aside our plans and, and roll with uh, roll with his plan. So that's what I've tried to do in wow. my life. Wow. Well, you've, you've, <laughs> you've accomplished a lot more with your, your second, with your plan B than most people do with their plan A. So uh, yeah. I, I guess I'd say one more thing. Uh, uh, what, is there something out there that, that you haven't done yet that you really would like to do? Oh, uh, boy, you you got me off guard with that question. Um, I don't know. You know, I mean, certainly uh, my family and my kids are really important. I want to make sure they turn out to be, you know, uh, good citizens, and uh, and I definitely try to spend time there. And um, I, I don't know what the next 20 or 30 years hold. I, I think it's, for me, uh, it's just to continue to, to do what I've been doing. I'm a little bit of a slow learner. And I'm a hands-on learner, so it takes me time to figure stuff out. Uh, it took me about, uh, you know, 10 years before I produced my own film as opposed to helping others. Mm-hmm. And so I think for me it's just a, it's a continual effort to learn more every day and be, get better at what I'm doing. And I think there's lots of room for that. Great. Well, Mark, I'm really glad you're there. And I, I'm, I'm also glad that you're, you're, you've got a food in the industry and – and especially, uh, I, I do know because I've spent some time with you uh, at Viola and uh, other places uh, like that, that you have a real heart for for uh, teaching uh, young kids. And uh, uh, it looks like we've got we've got a uh, a good uh, crop of uh, young students who are uh, for the first time, it seems to me, being set set free in some of these areas where uh, Christians haven't haven't been able to even walk or think about being uh, for many, many years, uh, headed to Hollywood in some, some form. So uh, that's encouraging to me, and, and I encourage you to keep keep uh, mentoring those kids in, in whatever way you, you, you get the opportunity to. Well, thank you, John. A lot of them stand on your shoulders of your writings and also your music. And, and I am, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still haunted by a line that I think uh, was it Nugent or one of the greats said uh, allegedly about Phil Keggy. Uh, I wonder what happened to that Phil Keggy. He could have saved the world with his guitar. And so that, yep. that still haunts me. And I think that we, you know, collectively a generation 
apology for the way that their art was not allowed to circulate and uh, and that we stand on their shoulders. Amen. Amen. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Mark, for being with us. And uh, uh, we'll let's do this again sometime. Thank you, John. Bye. Okay, and wish you well. And look for that uh, new, we'll be looking for that new book, too. <laughs> thank you. Okay, all right. Take care, Mark. Thank you. Good night. Well, John. Man. Wow. <laughs> that, yeah, that was good, huh? Absolutely. I mean, just where do you start? First off, I want to start by going back and listening to those Johnny Cash records, let me tell you. Yeah, yeah. But standing had, on the shoulders, wow. He, uh, you know, one of my favorite Johnny Cash uh, uh, lines was out of a uh, an article in in Rolling Stone magazine where they interviewed him after uh, one of those first of those three albums that uh, Mark referred to. Those yeah. are the, the ones Ruben produced. It. Yeah, yeah, the ones Ruben did. Yeah, John, Johnny is. Johnny and the guitar, you know. Yeah. And the first one, the first one has him with his black coat. You probably can mm-hmm. see the picture still. And he's got yeah. this his guitar around his shoulder, and there's two dogs, one on either side of him, and they're standing out in a field of wheat or something like that, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and he was, he he was, um, it, it, it was so great because it was it. The, the interview was winding down, and the, the guy who printed it wanted us to know that that this last question was really Johnny's idea, not his, because right. he says, and suddenly Johnny Cash says, well, don't you want to know about the dogs on my album cover? <laughs> <laughs> and he says, uh, uh, sure, Johnny, tell us about the dogs on your album cover. And he says, well, you notice one of them is almost all white with with some black. Yeah. And uh and uh one of them is all 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 black with some white, you know. He says some of us uh you know we 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 look pretty good. But I tell you but but we've got some black. Yes, <laughs> we we've got some evil and, and some of us the worst of us we've got some good there and and uh, so the end result of of all of this is is this is exactly why we all need to be redeemed. Mm. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> what, what a statement, huh? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, what's your takeaway, John? I mean, that was a great, that was just fun sitting back and just just, uh, just a great conversation. You know, what are some of the things that uh, that you're taking away from uh, your time with Mark? Well, I, I liked... Um, I actually did like his part there at the end when he talked about um, uh, us, us being being well-rounded and being being real and presenting who who we are. And yeah. actually, when he used Johnny as an example, mm-hmm. um, tell his story, tell those stories. We don't have to be embarrassed or afraid about anything. Yeah. Because uh, when you tell, uh, that's when you tell those. You know when we. When we have to be afraid or embarrassed is when yeah. we don't tell the whole story. We yeah. tell, we show, we show the Christian guy is is so squeaky clean. We we yeah. just don't. None of us even want to be like him. Yeah, you know? yeah. 
But wow. let's let's go let's 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 get down into where he struggles, down down into his own soul and his own yeah. heart. And and let's present the reality of that because then that like Johnny says, you know, we all need to be redeemed. And yes. the best of us the best of us have got black all over us, you know? And so uh that that's why we have to tell the truth. And yeah. I I think you know, I think that for me, those are the, the, the Christian attempts that have missed are because yeah. they're really not telling the whole truth. Mm. Mm. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Well, John, this has been a, a great, uh, a just, and they just keep every week, you know, I mean, just a, just another amazing uh, conversation. I know that we're going to be unpacking some of the conversations that we've had over the last year or so uh, in the days ahead. And, of course, we'll be uh, sharing uh, this uh, amazing conversation with Mark Joseph uh, here in the days ahead as well. But, jo- John, I think to uh, to land the plane on the show tonight, mm-hmm. uh, I, you know, I've queued up a little bit of uh, some Johnny Cash. Good for you. How about a little, uh, well, he mentioned, you know, one of those records, uh, the, kneeling, uh, the Kneeling Drunkard's yep. Plea, you know, is, uh, yeah. you know, just to send us off tonight. Um but, but John, great job tonight. Great show. Uh, looking forward to reading about this and uh, and uh, sharing it with others here in the days ahead. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Connor. All right, let's go to church. <laughs> All right. All right, John, we'll see you on the other side. That's wonderful. Thank you, Gunner. Good night, Gunner. Good night, everybody. God bless.